As I prepared for this tonight, I had a number of issues on my heart and mind over the last few years that have led me to this place of considering the passage that we're going to be looking at. One of them comes from my involvement in different churches, and often I get questions about um, different aspects of how other churches do things and what's a biblical model versus just a model that people like. And so the whole area of liturgy had come up, and about a year ago I was talking with an elder in another church about the concept of liturgy and what were some of the where we use a pattern of things. In fact, I think that you do some of that here, of things that people are used to doing. A a response at the end of uh, the benediction is one of those that we'll do here in a little bit. But as churches do that, one of the things I was doing was explaining through talking about the Lord's Prayer how it can be something rote that people just say or it can have real depth of meaning. Um, But I'm also very involved with a lot of... um, different leaders around the world. And as I interact with leaders, um, they have a lot of questions about different models. And sometimes leaders can look at at models that are developed in the secular world, Um, Drucker or other people, and they go, oh, that's great. And I keep pointing them back to say there are biblical models of servant leadership, biblical models that we can get Um, And one of the things I like to do is look at the prayers that leaders used in Scripture. And so in doing that, I've spent a lot of time over the last year, year and a half, looking at the Lord's Prayer. And as we come to this tonight, that's part of what I'm looking at is to say there are things that I want to share with you from God's Word about the Lord's Prayer, and especially the phrase, Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's what we're going to be looking at um, from Mark, the sixth chapter. If you turn there in your Bibles, um, it's a short thing. Now, in Latin America, it's traditional for everybody to stand out of reverence for God's Word. We're not going to do that tonight. But in your hearts, I am hoping that you remember, as you've been taught, that this is the place that we come to for answers, the inerrant, infallible Word of God. And that as we hear this tonight, I pray that the Spirit will speak to your heart and life. Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. Hear the word of God, people of God. Jesus said to them, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us pray. Father, we come into your presence tonight and we acknowledge that we only find answers in you. And so, Father, may we set aside my words, but hear the work of your spirit in our hearts and lives through your word tonight. We thank you for the years of ministry that have been of preaching of your word that have come from this pulpit. And we ask that covenant would continue to be light in the darkness, be salt in a needy world, and the covenant would continue to show forth your glory. For your name's sake we pray. Amen. In my work in um, investing in leaders, 
there's a number of different aspects that leaders come to out of the Lord's Prayer. And often when leaders are considering the Lord's Prayer and questions and issues they have, they often are looking at the second half of the Lord's Prayer. Leaders come to me and they want to know things like, how do we get forgiveness? And they're struggling with issues of grace and understanding God's grace. They want to know about God's providing for us. And they see on TV all the health and wealth gospel and they want to understand better. What, what's the difference of what the Bible teaches versus Joe Osteen? Um, those kinds of issues. They have questions about forgiving other people's debts against us, other people's transgressions against us. And questions about how can we be protected and be secure and delivered from the evil in the world around us? How can we be saved from temptation and not be led into it? And as I work to help leaders integrate into their learning and what they know with who they are as Christians and what they do as Christians, these are major issues and major concerns that they have coming from the second half of the Lord's Prayer. Those issues, though, are about us. And it's always helpful when we have an issue that talks about us to go back and say, just like we do in the Ten Commandments, the second half are things about us and the way we should act. The first half is about honoring God and his Sabbath and other things like that. And so we come and we say, let's look at the first half of the Lord's Prayer and see what that helps us with as we seek to talk about forgiveness and debts and provision and other issues from the Lord's Prayer, it's good to look at the first half that talks about God. And so I just want to touch real quickly on the first two statements in the Lord's Prayer, and then we're going to spend our time focusing on that statement, that part of the request, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But first it comes out and it says, our Father in heaven. Now, I think this is an area where we have some degree of understanding as Christians uh, living in the West. We, we've heard this term before. And so we come and we kind of accept it, our Father in heaven. But I want to say the rest of the world does not get this. And it hasn't been that way historically. The people that Moses was writing to, the people of Israel, they did not at that time, this would have been an unusual thing. As unusual as it is in Latin America from my perspective, the Roman Catholic Church, they don't have a concept of God in heaven as their father. It's, there is a God in heaven, but they fear him. Or my work in the Muslim world. One of the key ways of reaching a Muslim for me is to talk about having a relationship with God. And that you can see that God wants to be our father. Because I can tell you, theirs is fear. How are you going to earn a place in heaven? How are you going to satisfy a wrathful God in and of your own power, which we know that's not going to ever happen and is very difficult for them to figure out and work through. So as we think about this, that's one that we might have some understanding of, our Father in heaven, that relationship with God. The second phrase is, hallowed be thy name. Now this one's a little bit more difficult. Hallowed, as you look at some of the other people groups that were around Israel in that time when this was being written, hallowed was that term. It's not an English word, hallowed, but the term was one that was applied to kings. It was applied to people set apart. And we use it in a way to say, holy, uh, apart from us, hallowed be thy name. His name lifted up. 
Now, as Americans, we struggle with this a little bit more because we don't like kings very much. Um, Someone pointed out to me the Virginia flag, which I thought was a great illustration of this, because the Virginia flag, if anybody from Virginia, nobody from Virginia, all right, the Virginia flag, I might get this a little wrong, I I looked at it again a couple weeks ago, but it has a lady, and I think she's either justice or peace, and she's standing with her foot on the neck of a king, and his crown is rolled off his head, and it's on the ground, and the whole point of the, the flag is that Virginia is against tyrants, against kings. And the chains of oppression are broken and his whip is broken, all this kind of stuff, basically saying, we don't want kings, we're against kings, they're not good for us. And that's where we come from as Americans. But in this, we're praying thy kingdom come. And this hallowed be thy name is lifted up, is the one that we call father in heaven. And so as we do that, I begin to think about what it means to have a king. And of course, biblically, we go back to the story when the people of Israel wanted to have a king like the people around them. And God said, you're not going to like this. And if you'd wait for my king, it won't be bad. But if you want that king, just because you want one now, he's going to require things of you. He's going to make your life harder. He's going to, you're not going to like it. And that's basically how we think of kings, inconvenient, uh, tyrants, that sort of mindset. But as we come to the Lord's Prayer, I want us to turn that around a little bit and to think about our Father in heaven and who's hallowed as our king. And then we come and we pray, King Jesus, living in heaven, our Father in heaven, hallowed, lifted up, holy is your name, Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These first two aspects of the Lord's Prayer should have a great impact on the third line that we're considering tonight um, of, of how the kingdom of our Father, the Holy One who lives in heaven above, is coming to earth and should be on earth as it is in heaven. Before we get into it, I want to mention one other thing, and that's having to do with the aspect of talking about heaven. Sometimes I think that we get very confused in thinking about heaven. If you listen to the world around us, heaven is a place where we sit on clouds, strum harps, um, listen to beautiful music, which we appreciate, but we come and we sit around all day singing uh, with little wings or something, and it's kind of creepy. But to me, um, heaven is a different than that. Um, And then we will unpack that a little bit more as we go through. But what I want to say is, as we consider this, we need to think a little bit different about heaven. We need to think different about kings and kingdoms, because this is what we're praying for. We're praying that God's kingdom comes to earth as it is in heaven. When we want to understand that, this whole concept of the kingdom of God, I just wanted to unpack it a little bit for you. And I'm going to go real quick through this, kind of an overview of some biblical aspects about the kingdom of God. And if you're taking notes, which I know some are, I'll send this to you on email if you want it. I can just do that easily. But Sinclair Ferguson defines the kingdom of God this way. The kingdom is the rule and reign of God, the expression of his gracious sovereign will. And to belong to the kingdom of God is to belong to the people among whom the reign of God has already begun. Simply put, he says the kingdom of God and God's reign and rule coming to expression in and through the lives and circumstances of its citizens. 
is a kingdom where God, who is spirit, reigns spiritually through his appointed King Jesus in the hearts and lives of his people. The kingdom of God is called the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of the Lord. The idea of the kingdom of God undergirds the teaching of the entire Bible. Scripture reveals God's role um, in different ways. And one of the ways, a universal way of uh, a metaphor that's used in Scripture, is often seen as God as the divine king. Um, 1 Samuel 8 would be one of those. Among the basic convictions there is that God is the supreme king of all of creation. That his kingdom is all of creation. Psalm 47, Psalm 83, Daniel 4, Daniel 5. And in a general sense, God has always been the sovereign king who rules over everything. Psalm 103, Psalm 113, Matthew 5, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, Revelation 7. All passages that point to this aspect of our sovereign king ruling over all. But in our passage tonight, it focuses down a little bit more. And Jesus is describing here a narrower sense of the kingdom of God. When he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here in Matthew 6, God's holiness and God's glory in his heavenly throne room is so overwhelming that all the creatures there honor him with unqualified voluntary service. But on earth... Creatures have rebelled, as you know, and they refuse to acknowledge God as their king, and evil kingdoms rise up and oppose God's kingdom. The hope that scripture presents from cover to cover is the idea that this disparity between the heavenly kingdom on one hand and the earthly kingdom on the other hand will be dealt with. That the heavenly throne room and earth, the conflict between those will be eliminated one day. And I love it in David's song of praise in 1 Colossians 16. He says this, pointing to that day. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. All the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Brothers and sisters, that's the picture that we look forward to when the kingdom comes and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. God will judge the wicked and bring redeemed humanity into a new creation. Isaiah 65 talks about this. In Ezekiel 14, when the transformation takes place, God's kingdom will stand and voluntary obedience to him will extend to the ends of the earth as it does in heaven. Scripture scripture teaches this. God has determined that his goal of establishing his kingdom here on earth will be a lengthy historical process. 
starting with one man and one family group. The choice of Abraham Abraham and his descendants is God's chosen people in Exodus 3 and 6. The kingdom of God was limited to the descendants and people of Israel. God asserted his kingship here on earth when he delivered Israel from Egypt and brought her out of the promised land. Exodus 15. And under David and Solomon, Israel became a defined territory with the sons of David sitting on the throne of the people of God in 1 Chronicles 29. And with God's royal footstool being the temple, 1 Chronicles 28. This limited form of the kingdom was not an end into itself. But Old Testament Israel was established as a stage for which the kingdom of God would extend to all the peoples of the world, all the lands of the earth. And this biblical view of the kingdom of God, the people of God, were to bring mankind into the kingdom of God. When we think about the role of mankind on earth in the kingdom of God, I started thinking about the role that the world sees. It amazed me as Ebola came into Spain, people weren't protesting about what might happen to them. They were protesting about what might happen to the animal, the dog that the nurse had. Remember that? And I look at it and I'm just amazed that the world sees the role of mankind pretty much as just another one of the animals. In fact, I have a young man comes to our home on occasion that says that he's not a believer. And I asked him one time why we are here. And as I listened to what he was getting in college, it's basically that humankind is a virus. And the best we can hope for is that humankind will not do any more damage to the world and to other creatures. That's how the world around us looks at mankind. Sometimes Christians have kind of a strange view of looking at man. They look at man and they primarily think of man as a sinner. And yes, we're all sinners in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of his redemption in our lives. But that's mankind after the fall. Mankind was given a role by God before the fall. Westminster Confession of Faith, as you know, is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But sometimes I think Christians get confused with that and they go back to that picture of heaven, of enjoying God, meaning that we sit on a cloud and strum our harp. I don't think we have a good understanding of what the Westminster is talking about. To better understand what we mean when we say, when we pray, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, let us look at one biblical example, one word picture that might better help us understand this. The role of man, one of the earliest pictures of the kingdom of God, comes right at the very beginning of Scripture. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 1, verse 26, where it says this. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27 of chapter 1, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This early word picture is important because it tells us a number of things. First of all, you'll notice as you read the other descriptions of creation, God just makes things. But in this description, he has a council in heaven. They discuss what they're going to make. 
before he makes man. They discuss what man's role is going to be before he makes man. And then he goes and he does it. And when he does it, he makes us male and female in the image of God. And the first thing he says to man is, here's your role. Here's your job description. Now, as we think about this and think about what it means, we could consider the communable attributes of God and that whole theology, and that's good to do. But when you go back and you think about what the early um, receivers of this text would have thought of, they knew one person who was the image bearer of God. They had one person in mind that they knew had images made of themselves, One person who had cities made in their honor, who had pyramids made in their honor. It was the Pharaoh, the king. The king's job in the nations around Israel was to communicate with the gods, to represent the gods, to be the image of God to the people, to be considered a god to the people, and to work out what the gods wanted on earth. And so what the king said was rule as he was the image of God and represented God to the people. As we think through that and think about what it means to have the image of God in the middle of our world, to be made in the likeness of God, this was a shocking thing. Because as, Abraham, as Moses wrote this, he was saying, we are the image of God. Mankind is the image of God. Not just male, male and female are the image of God. We are the ones that have re- received the knowledge of God and are to represent God and his kingdom in this world and to make that happen. Now, as we think about that, this role of man in the world and the Im- as an image bearer, was very radical for them because they had been slaves. They were worthless. And I don't know whether you're going to vote soon. I do encourage you to vote. I don't know what your political views are, but vote as a Christian. I want to encourage you to do that. But whatever your views are on political things, there's one thing about President Obama I can say we all agree on. And that is what he does is important. Things he does impact us impact the world. We care about how he's doing. If he's sick, if he has an argument with somebody, if he has a disagreement with his wife and he gets mad one night and says, see this red button, I'm going to push it. That can make a difference in our world. For most of us, we can press red buttons all day long and it doesn't make any difference. We're not important like that. But a leader is important. And we come and we say, though, that we are made in the image of God. I, I have some friends and we were reading through Martin Luther's I Have a Dream speech um, about a year ago and it really hit me how in his speech Martin Luther was, uh, Martin Luther King was um, pointing to people who had had nothing and what their hopes and dreams were for the future. I see that as the people of Israel who have been slaves received this word of God through Moses and went, wait a minute, were the image of God? were the representative of God on earth. What an incredible thing that must have been. But as they come and they thought about this, I want to illustrate this job description or this title of being image bearer a little bit more. Um, When I was fresh out of 
high school and went back to Atlanta where my parents were, and I was an assistant manager at McDonald's. And I thought that was a hot title to have, a big job. I was offered assistant manager. I quickly learned that assistant manager meant nothing except that I had to do all the jobs that the manager didn't want to do. That meant working late at night. It meant doing end-of-the-month inventory and staying up and counting everything. You don't think that those ladies who worked the morning shift paid any more attention to what I said than the man on the moon. But I did whatever the manager didn't want to be. Sometimes we have titles, and those titles don't mean anything, or they're not as prestigious as what we think. But in this case... We are the image of God. We are representatives of God on the earth. And we have a job title and a job description that means something. This job description has five parts in it. Let me say real quickly. It's be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. Now, most theologians divide that up into two sections. One section has to be fruitful, multiply, and fill. And that's the concept of that in the Garden of Eden, the people of God were to have children. And they were to fill the earth with images of God, with these image bearers that would bring glory to God. And of course, the fall came. And so coming out of that, we have not just have more babies, which is a good thing, um, but also have babies uh, reach out to other people and through evangelism, have them come back to being redeemed image bearers of God. And so this idea of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth is something that we need to be committed to as image bearers. I do want to say that we believe missions exist because worship doesn't. And that someday missions and evangelism, those efforts that I'm involved with and many of you are involved with will not continue on because the, the day will come when God's people will be ruling over all the earth. But as we are in that process today of being image bearers, I do want to say that this isn't just a quality issue of knowledgeable image bearers of God, but it's also a quantity issue that we should be praying that God would fill the whole earth which, with image bearers of him. And so as we do evangelism, as we pass on our faith to our children, as we are seeking to be fruitful in this world, that's our job. But we also have a job of dominion, to rule over the earth, to subdue the earth. Now, I travel a lot on planes, and there are two types of people on planes. There are people that want to sit down and talk the whole time, or there are people that don't want you to say anything to them. And sometimes I prefer the second one, but I often end up sitting by someone that's the first one. Maybe that's because I might talk back to them. But anyway, I'm often asked, what is your job? What do you do? And I don't really come out and say my job is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Or my job is to have dominion over all the earth and subdue it. But that is our job, brothers and sisters. That is why we are here. We are to subdue the earth, the whole earth, not just one place in the world. Remember, this is talking about Adam and Eve. They were in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was the Garden of God. It's where God came and walked with his people, where God came in the cool of the evening and fellowshiped with Adam and Eve, where God interacted with his people. Adam and Eve had work there. 
And I think in heaven and on the new earth, there will be the work of tending God's garden. It talks about in Genesis 1.15 that they work and tended God's holy garden. And God was visible there. But what this is saying is that the whole world will be that way. So I begin to think about what places were like before humans came. I don't know if you've read much about what Central Florida was like before humans came and started making a difference here, improving it. But this wasn't a nice place to live. No air conditioning, lots of bugs and marshes and nastiness. Um, I was flying over a part of Mexico a week ago, and it was just mile after mile of swampland and jungle. And then you come over part of the city. And I'm a city person. I like cities. I've always ministered in cities and see that as a part of who I am. But it was amazing to me, even for sinful man, to look down and see the organized cities and the beautiful buildings and the parks and traffic moving and all of that stuff and go, mankind in his fallenness has made a difference here. Mankind redeemed should make an even greater difference as we have dominion over the world, as we look at the world around us and say we are to subdue it and to make it a better place that brings honor and glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know the gospel. This isn't done in our own power. It's not that we're so great, but we come as image bearers that have been broken by sin. But as we are redeemed by the blood of Christ, all things are made new. Our hope is in Jesus. And we join him as the incarnation of God on earth, making this place what it should be. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, by man came death, but by a man came the resurrection of the dead. Paul did not say by faith came the resurrection of the dead or by sacrifice it came, but Jesus came to fulfill the job given to us at the beginning of scripture on earth, in heaven above, on the earth below, bad places, places that are full of sin, places that have not seen God's glory will one day bring out the glory of God. And the development of this idea of kingdom is throughout scripture. As we think about it, there are three pieces of the kingdom um, that are there in scripture, three aspects of it. The inauguration of the kingdom of God, and that is the arrival of King Jesus on the scene. When Jesus came, the kingdom of God came with him to be sure God had always been Lord of creation. He created all things and holds all things together. There has never been a moment since the dawn of time where the Lord did not reign over all that was made. However, his reign was demonstrated in a new and dramatic way when Jesus arrived. Jesus brought the reign and rule of God from heaven to earth. When Jesus preached the time has come, the kingdom of God is near in Mark 1 verse 15, he was not just saying the kingdom of God is near in regards to time. He was saying that the kingdom of God is near in regards to space. The word became flesh and lived among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth, John 1:14. Jesus came as a man to reveal that he was God, the king of all here on earth. And all of Jesus' ministry, the words that he spoke, the miracles he performed were said and done in part to show that there was a new order in town, God's order. The inauguration of God's kingdom through Jesus began at that, that aspect of the great reversal 
Um, and, and I can only illustrate this easily through talking about C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia. If you remember that point in time when Aslan, who in that story is representing God coming back to this world frozen by the evil, wicked witch. And they talk about the aspect of winter moving backwards. The arrival of King Jesus ensures that God is beginning the process of reversing the curse of sin and the recreation of all things has begun. That's the the inauguration of the kingdom. We are in the continuation of the kingdom. The continuation stage of the kingdom of God is the stage we are in. In this stage, God continues his process of reversing the curse of sin, reversing and recreating his image bearers. God's expanding his kingdom spiritually by building up his invisible church, calling men and women to himself, setting them apart as his own people and sending them out into the world as his invisible kingdom, making his kingdom visible to others. We do this by setting them apart, sending them out into the world, making his kingdom visible through the work of the Holy Spirit and the transformation of human lives and the world around us to see more of his glory. And then ultimately, we look forward to the consummation of the kingdom. The consummation stage of the kingdom is when Jesus comes back and the process of reversing the curse of sin and the recreating of all things will be complete. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. There will be no more tears. There will be no more division. There will be no more tension. There will be no more war. There will be complete harmony. We will work and play without the interference of sin. And all that causes us pain and all that causes us discomfort will be destroyed. And we will live forever enjoying sinless hearts and minds along with disease-free bodies. And we will finally be able to say, as John Piper said, to enjoy what is most enjoyable with unbounded energy and unbounded passion forever. The hearts of those in heaven will say, I want this to go on forever. It won't be bored just playing a harp. That's a whole other sermon I'll leave to David or others to do. But it'll be a tremendous thing to say, we are here and we see every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is king over all. And the new heavens and the new earth will be set up and his kingdom will be visible without, without imperfection. So today, brothers and sisters, as we pray, thy kingdom come and thy will be done, know that in a very real way, the seeds of the kingdom of God are here in the work of Jesus Christ in your own life, in the life of every believer. Yet it's not here in full form. We pray that we will live out our call to be the image bearers of God, that we would live it out in our jobs, that we would live it out in our families, that we would live it out in our communities, that we would live it out in the world around us, that Jesus will be glorified through our lives and that the power of the Holy Spirit would impact those places where the glory of God is not seen. And so my prayer for you is that you would understand better that you are an image bearer of the Most High and that you would understand better that you pray, we want to see your kingdom come, Lord. We want to see your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Philippians 2, I want to close with this. 
Verse 5 says this in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which, which is yours in Jesus Christ. Verse 6 of chapter 2 of Philippians. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name, so at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Father, it is my prayer that my brothers and sisters here tonight would understand your word in a better way, that they would know that they are truly remarkably made as image bearers of the Most High. Father, we pray as image bearers of the Most High that we would see your kingdom come, that we would see your will be done, both on earth as it is in heaven. May all bring you glory. May all praise your name. May every knee bow soon, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's in his name we pray, amen.